One of the reasons we say a blessing over our meal, and I hope you do, and I hope you're not embarrassed to do it. If you're out in some restaurant, you ought to pray, not like a Pharisee, but as one who's grateful. You ought to pray over your food. One, because it's an opportunity for you to express gratitude. When a third of the world today will have less than a half a cup of rice to survive on. But secondly, the word, in God, the word of God in prayer sets that food apart. It sanctifies it. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we have so far looked at the qualification of elders and deacons in service to the local church. The Apostle Paul has penned these lines to Timothy as guidelines to building a faithful church or a body of believers. As we reach the end of this chapter, we begin to get a better understanding of why it is crucial that God's church remain faithful. It is the tendency of sinful man to stray from God's will and it is a pastor's duty to make sure that his flocks stay on the right path. As Dr. Brogy picks up where we left off yesterday, we see that we are closer than ever to the tribulation as we witness the great apostasy taking place in the church today. In my short lifetime, we have seen, not just in our nation, but across the world, Christian groups that were once orthodox institutions and denominations that are now renouncing the basic truths of the Scripture. And I believe what is happening is God is setting the stage when that day comes and Antichrist is revealed. And in a wholesale way, the nominal Christians of this world will renounce Christ and give allegiance to a false doctrine. And so we have people who no longer live by the principles of Scripture. They proclaim a different message, a different one than the one they once held to be true. And so while the church throughout all of its history has been faced with doctrinal controversy, confusion, and conflict between truth and heresy, the battle in our day is raging like it never has. If you've studied church history even a little bit, you will see that we are seeing before our eyes something that is very unique that God spoke of. And the Spirit expressly declared a long time ago that it would happen. But in addition to the fact that apostasy was predicted by the Spirit, I want you to notice here beginning in verse 2, apostasy is described by Paul. Paul gives us four ways in which we can recognize false teachers and false doctrine in the paragraph here that follows. First, he teaches us that these false teachers are energized by Satan. He calls their teaching, notice, doctrines of demons. Now, there's a reference to the Spirit twice in this verse. One with a capital S. You see it there? It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then with a small s. And of course, that's a reference to demonic spirits. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, these false teachers who are alive and will be very much heard in the last days, it's not original with them. These false teachers haven't 
thought it all up on their own. Behind these false teachers is the devil and demonic forces. And so the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, warns us of unclean spirits that will come upon the world, especially in the last days. Now, we tend to think of Satan and his demons primarily engaged in enticing people to sin. But we must never forget that not only is Satan a tempter, he is a liar. He as much deceives people in the air as he entices people into sin. And so on the one hand, there is the mystery of godliness that Paul speaks of in these verses. And then there is the mystery of lawlessness that he writes to the church in Thessalonica about that is rooted in demonic spirits. I've often asked myself the question, how is it that intelligent thinking people, educated people, can reject the Bible and swallow some of the fantastic teachings of these non-nominal Christian churches in our day and many of the cults. I mean, how, is, how can a thinking person become a Christian scientist? How can a thinking person become a member of the Church of the Latter-day Saints? How can a person believe and think and ascribe to such nonsense? Or how could even millions of people embrace the teachings of Muhammad? How could thinking people accept papal infallibility or the assumption of marrying to heaven? And how could nominal Protestants believe and reject the deity of Jesus Christ for the simple reason that behind false teachers are demonic spirits? Satan is the great imitator, and he has his own ministers and doctrines, and he seeks to deceive people through them and lead them astray. So Paul will tell the Corinthians, in whose case? The God, it's a small g there, he's speaking to the devil. The God of this world, the one who has temporary authority, because Adam lost it through his disobedience, but Christ will regain it fully at his second coming. In whose case? The God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil has his doctrine and the devil has his servants because he does not usually directly solicit people. He works through a false preacher. Paul again will tell the Corinthians, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Not only are there false teachers energized by the devil, but secondly, a mark of apostasy is they lead people astray. Look again at the verse. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Their goal is to seduce people to part from the faith. Now the word fall away, it's a verb here. The noun is apostasia. We get our word apostasy directly from the Greek. And it refers to a willful turning away from the truth. And when Paul refers to these who fell away from the faith, obviously he's not describing a true Christian who was saved and then lost it. Because a true Christian cannot fall away from the faith. But there are many people today who think they are Christians but they are only nominal Christians. And such people he is addressing. Now, the faith here, when you see it 
accompanied by the article the. He's not just speaking of faith, that is, your personal faith, as if you lost your salvation. He's describing of those who depart from the faith. The articular use in the New Testament, as written in Jude's epistle, refers to that body of truth delivered once and for all by the apostles to the church. He's speaking of those who turn away from this body of truth we call the Bible. He's not describing a true believer, but someone who's been exposed to the truth of Christianity, but who never willfully in their heart embraced it. Nominal Christians. Hey, I want to tell you, it's a dangerous thing to sit in a church like this and to hear the truth preached and not to embrace it. Because your unwillingness to embrace it actually sets you up for demonic activity. John spoke of it. He said, children, it is the last hour. You know, all of the New Testament writers spoke with a sense of imminency that Christ could come at any moment, that they were in the last hour because they recognized prophetically nothing had to be accomplished for Jesus Christ to come again. He could come and catch up his church at any moment. Now, there's all kinds of prophecy that must be fulfilled for the second coming to take place. But the rapture happens before the second coming. And any remaining doctrine that will be left will be fulfilled in those seven years that will follow. But before our own eyes, we are seeing scores of prophecy, if you know your Bible, being fulfilled that reminds us that we are in that late part of the last hour. But he writes here in the first century, children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, that is that one world leader who is going to capture the world's attentions and allegiance. Even now, many false Christs, many Antichrists have appeared from this. We know it's the last hour. God said it would happen in the last days. They went out from us, these false teachers, but they were not really of us. They weren't true Christians. For if they had been of us, converted, they would have remained with us. Because you see, perseverance is a mark of conversion. You're not saved by perseverance, but those who are saved will persevere. They would have remained with us, but they went out so that it might be shown that they all are not of us. 1 John 2.19 is teaching you cannot lose it. And if you lost it, salvation, you never had it to begin with. But not only are these false teachers energized by the devil, leading people away from the doctrine of truth we call the Bible, we also learn one of their marks is they are hypocrites. Jesus said, so then you will know them by their fruits. Among other things, false teachers say one thing, they do another. Their behavior is hypocritical, sometimes on an experiential level, other times on an on a, a intellectual level. That is, they know what the truth is. God's Spirit has pierced their heart. And they know it to be true, but they deny it anyway. And they tell their disciples they ought to do the same. And so Paul says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The devil works by the means of hypocrisy of liars. Now, a true man of God is a man of honesty and integrity, and he practices what he preaches. It doesn't mean that he's perfect, but as a way of life, he has a good and clear conscience. But these people, the Bible says, are seared. The Greek word is keteriazo. We get our word cauterized directly from it. They are cauterized. They're seared as with a red-hot burning iron. Just as a person's flesh or an animal's flesh can be branded or seared so that it is totally unresponsive and unfeeling, so a person's conscience can become deaded. And when a man 
denies with his life what he professes with his lips, his conscience just becomes a little bit more dead. Jesus made it very clear that not religious talk, not even performing great miracles is what authenticates you as a Christian, but obedience as a way of life. A mark that you've been born again and secured for heaven is that you will obey God. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name. We preached this in your name. I never knew you. Elsewhere, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? And these people who are led astray by these false teachers first compromise what they know to be right in their personal life. They turn a deaf ear to their conscience. They refuse to listen typically to the moral demands of God. And instead of repenting, they persist in their rebellion and they kick their consciences to death so they can no longer hear. And when that happens, a person becomes easy prey to deceitful spirits. Behind intellectual error lies moral evil. And when the conscience is violated, the mind is darkened. See, an apostate, a false teacher, those who fall from the truth typically first make some kind of moral decision. Jesus described such people in the parable of the sower. He said, and those beside the road are those who've heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. Note the next phrase, that they may not believe and be saved. You know what? Some people, because they've kicked the voice of conscience to death, will never believe and be saved. And then he notes that one way that you can spot these false teachers is that they deny God's word. And to make his point, Paul illustrates one particular heresy in his day that is an exaggerated asceticism. Look, if you will, at what he says. In verse 3, he speaks of false teachers who are men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Marriage and food, they both represent natural bodily appetites. Physical intimacy on the one hand, hunger on the other. However, some of these extreme ascetics in Paul's day taught that an unmarried person was somehow more spiritual than a married man. Of course, that goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. God said it is not good that man should be alone. Likewise, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19, though he spoke of the exception, he spoke of God's approval, God's norm for a person to be married. And you ought to seriously question any religious institution that tampers with the institution of marriage. Some marriage that say it's pastors, it's priests, somehow are more holy because they're celibate. You ought to be very carefully alert to such teaching because they are going against the clear teaching of Scripture. These false teachers infected the Ephesian church. They also taught that certain foods were taboo. And if you ate them, you just weren't spiritual. Five times over, they ignore it. God said His creation was good, but that didn't seem to interest these false teachers. And so while you can't give up all food because you need it to survive, they selectively eliminate certain foods. Typically, they were vegetarians. 
Now, the authority that they used to dictate such behavior was not consistent with the Word of God. Because those who believe and know the truth aren't impressed with these legalistic do's and don'ts that have no foundation in the Word of God. Jesus, Mark 7, said, everything is clean. You can eat it. He reaffirmed that lesson to Peter in Acts chapter 10, and Paul echoed the same truth in his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 10. Now, I know that sometimes a person cannot eat a certain food, maybe due to some physical allergy, but no food is to be rejected for a spiritual reason. Yet in our day, even on the high and holy days in the Catholic Church, you still cannot eat meat. In Seventh-day Adventism, you cannot eat meat. And I want to tell you, it is beginning to move into the evangelical church. That somehow, you are more holy and spiritual if you refrain from certain foods. And I want to tell you, it's flat out wrong. And most serious doctrinal errors come from a lack of knowledge of what the Bible says. Jesus basically told the Pharisees, you're ignorant. You're wrong, he said, because you know neither the scriptures, much less do you know the power of God. And so Paul, like Jesus, describes this asceticism for abstaining from marriage and from certain foods as ignorance to biblical truth. He says in verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. One of the reasons we say a blessing over our meal, and I hope you do, and I hope you're not embarrassed to do it. If you're out in some restaurant, you ought to pray, not like a Pharisee, but as one who's grateful. You ought to pray over your food. One, because it's an opportunity for you to express gratitude when a third of the world today will have less than a half a cup of rice to survive on. But secondly, the word, in God, the word of God in prayer sets that food apart. It sanctifies it. And so what God says in his word, and as you pray over it, it takes an ordinary meal and it turns it into a spiritual service for the Lord. And so the church is to have a real concern about apostasy because the spirit predicted it would come in the last days. Paul describes it in these verses. And finally, we must not ignore the leadership that a pastor is to take in this role. Verse 6, apostasy is to be exposed by the pastor. That's the thought of the verse. Apostasy is to be exposed by the pastor. He tells Timothy, in pointing these, out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, we learned last week from Acts 6 that the emphasis of a pastor's life ought to be on the Word of God and on prayer. And it's a tragic thing when a pastor is kept so busy with so many tasks that God has not called him to fulfill, such that he's kept away from studying the Word of God and praying. And it's even more tragic when a pastor doesn't know his God-given job description and he yields to that folly and expectations that people put on him. But here, Paul is reminding young Timothy that he has a responsibility to study, teach, and preach the scriptures. And so as a good servant, he must be nourished on the words of, uh, in the, on, he must, excuse me, he must be nourished in the words of the faith. You get it? He says, feed on the word of God. Study the word of God. 
Know it so well that you can spot these counterfeits, that you can point these things out to your people. Now, certainly a pastor does not devote all of his time to pointing out heresy because he is called to teach the whole counsel of Scripture, but neither should he ignore it. Now, right now, as you travel around Beaufort County, with all the construction we have going on, there are basically two kinds of signs. Those that tell us where we're going, you know, Hilton Head, 28 miles. And those that warn us of possible dangers, delays ahead, be careful, be prepared to stop. And so as a pastor, positively, we need to teach doctrine so the people will know what they are to believe and how they are to behave. But on the other hand, we are to expose false doctrine so that the people will not be seduced and led astray. And of course, in this day, when you speak out against the cults, when you speak out against liberalism that has taken over so many of our churches in America, you're considered divisive and hateful and narrow. But the man of God would do well to point out these things. Now let me leave you with three applications as we close. Number one, first, the widespread apostasy of our day is a reminder that we're living in the last days. This apostasy that we are seeing so vividly grow like a cancer is a reminder that we are living in the last of the last days. Listen, although no one knows precisely when Jesus Christ will come back, Jesus said you'll know when the time is near. And the growing heresy in Christian churches around the world is an indication that demonic forces are hard at work and the time is fast approaching. These are days when the devil has his servants everywhere. And very often they are charismatic, very persuasive. But don't be sucked in if their doctrine does not match with the word of God. Reject it. Secondly, it is also a reminder these days of apostasy that we must know our Bibles. We need to make sure we know our Bibles. Paul told Timothy to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which he'd been following all along. Paul's point is not simply to Timothy but to every Christian that you cannot combat error unless you have a steady diet of truth. It needs to be true in our personal lives and it needs to be true in the pulpit it is absolutely essential that the word of God is taught and obeyed and only then can we effectively minister third the apostasy in our day reminds us not only that we're in the last of the last days and that we need to know the word of God it's a reminder that we must guard our consciences we must guard our consciences now Paul has a lot to say about conscience in this epistle he opened up the epistle with these words. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Likewise, in that first chapter, he encouraged Timothy to fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And then according uh, to this third chapter, he uh, speaks of uh, men who are to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience in contrast to these false teachers who are seared as with a branding iron and their conscience. So on the one hand, if you're saved, you need to keep a clean and clear conscience. And I want to tell you, if you set your conscience by the average standard of the average Christian in America, it won't be clean. 
because we are living in a day of gross compromise, incredible lukewarmness, and huge ignorance of the Word of God. You cannot set it by another person's behavior. You must set it according to Scripture. And if you are to keep a clear and clean conscience in this day, only then will you be able to effectively serve Him. Otherwise, you might become disqualified like those two believers that He spoke of in chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were shipwrecked in their faith. Now, while I recognize a believer cannot develop a seared conscience, he can dirty his conscience and ruin his influence. But I want to tell you, if you're lost, you can develop a cauterized conscience, one that is totally unfeeling and unresponsive to the Holy Spirit. And some people, oh, they think they can get away with sin. They think they can sin with no consequences. And what they are doing is they are slowly deadening their conscience, and there comes a day where it's cauterized. It cannot hear the voice of God. And you mark it down big and plain and clear. A man's theology is typically dictated by his morality. It's moral choices that men make that cause them to have conflict with this book. Oh, many times we're convicted or we're convinced that the biggest obstacle that we're facing with the unbeliever is an intellectual one. Nothing could be further from the truth. The biggest obstacle is not intellectual, it's moral. Don't miss the connection between the Word of God and one's conscience. Your conscience is not your enemy, it's your friend. But when you ignore it, you can open yourself to all kinds of false doctrine. Calvin used to say, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. And some unbelievers, because of moral choices they are making, are deadening their consciences. And it won't be until they wake up in hell that they will discover how foolish they were. Look, if you're here today and you haven't had a second birth, there may come a time when you will never be able to hear There's an urgency to your decision. God says today is the day of salvation. And if you don't respond today, you're hardening your heart just a little bit more. And it'll be all that much harder to respond tomorrow. And someday, you will never be able to respond. Now, our Father, help us to take this truth today. Help us to heed it, not to ignore it, but to embrace it with all of our hearts. Father, I pray today for someone who's here who's not saved, that you would give them the grace to turn in faith to the Lord Jesus, to call upon His name. Maybe that's you today. Would you say there in your heart, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Lord Jesus, I cannot save myself, but I thank you that you died in my place and took my wrath, and I turned from my rebellion, and I embrace you as the living God. Would you say that? Would you say in faith, Lord Jesus, save me? And because you have saved me, I will make it public. Now, Father, help us who know you to have clear and clean consciences in this day, setting our spiritual values by the Word of God. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's study in its entirety or to help support Search the Scriptures, call us at 877-787-7478 or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. To order Effective Ministry in the Last Days, the title of today's study, just ask for Program 1TM9. Tomorrow, we'll get a closer look at the man, Timothy, and find out what a good servant of Christ Jesus he was, as well as how we, too, can be good servants. That's tomorrow, as again we search the Scriptures. 